Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm your host, Tina Pippen, along with my co-host, Lucia Holsether. On this podcast, we've interviewed several leaders in theater for social change. In this episode, we are excited to speak with Wendy Ballou, Executive Director of Reforming Arts in Atlanta, Georgia. Wendy has a background in theater and business as it's working toward a PhD in qualitative research and evaluation methodology in lifelong education, administration and policy in the College of Education at the University of Georgia. Wendy takes their theater education experience to women in Georgia prisons as part of a certificate program through Georgia State University's College and Prison Program. Reforming Arts states their mission. Our theater-infused higher education in prison and reentry programs foster the development of creative critical thinking and encourages students to explore creative solutions and build livable lives. From theater classes to the creation of original plays, Wendy draws upon the work of Paulo Freire and Augusto Boal, along with David Diamond's Theater for Living. Wendy has won numerous awards for their work, including the 2018 Atlanta Magazine Women Making a Mark Award and the 2019 Elon Dooley Social Justice Champion Award. From 2017 to 2019, Wendy served as the Hardwick Trip Coordinator for the Families of Incarcerated Persons for the Open Door Community, a self-designed Protestant Catholic worker house now in Baltimore, Maryland. One quote from Wendy, education is transformative. It changes the way you view yourself and the way you view the world. Wendy's pedagogy in theater education in prisons is instructive for all of us in the world. Join us in talking with Wendy about infusing theater and prison education and reentry programs and education for social change and living in and post-incarceration. Welcome, Wendy, to Nothing Never Happens. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation. Thank you for coming. Um, I'll just throw a first question at you, which is, I'm wondering if you can describe for us and for our listeners the the context of teaching in um, prisons in the state of Georgia. And that can include kind of a view of the landscape, but also kind of um, your work with the open door community and um, reforming arts. Right. So I began uh, teaching inside women's prisons um, in 2009 and I, um, was just, I started teaching really two theater classes. Um, and I thought, I, I thought, well, I had, I knew I was called to do something in prisons. I didn't know what. <laughs> and um, I was kind of called around to see how I could volunteer because I was doing my second master's degree program at that time and thought that a call to do stuff in prison meant chaplaincy. And so before I started a third master's degree, I wanted to go in and make sure that, um, you know, I, you know, cause at one point I was a financial advisor. I wish I had gone and checked that out before I went into it, you know? Um, because, you know, on my first day as an employee, I was like, I don't think this is for me, but I was in, I passed the test and all, and, you know, paid all that money for the, for the test. So I thought, well, I'm, I want to make sure, you know, this is a big thing. And so my first day I realized because I am a, a rule questioner, I realized within five minutes of being inside the prison that I would never be an employee of this, you know, of a correctional department of corrections. Um, because I was like, I'll just get fired so quickly because I just, you know, I ask questions, I push back, um, in, in that way. So to go, and we've taught in 
not all at the same time necessarily, but we, uh, for 10 years, we were at Lee Arendelle State Prison, which was when we first began was a minimum medium security facility and then transitioned in 2011 to the max, maximum security facility. And then we've also taught, we were taught in Metro State Prison when it was a women's prison before it closed. We've taught in Metro Transitional Center, which has its own little, you know, working in Transitional Center has its little differences. Uh, and then we are slight, and we've, uh, right before the pandemic, uh, made it where we couldn't teach in the prisons for a year or more, uh, or more than a year now. Um, we were at Whitworth State Prison, which is a considered uh, considered a work camp. So it's a small prison, has about 450 uh, people that live there. And then we've um, Pulaski State Prison has agreed to bring our program down there, um, but they agreed to that right before the pandemic. And so we've not actually ever taught a class there. Um, and so these prisons themselves are they again go from Transition center has houses about 200 people. People are going out to work. They're kind of have a hard time scheduling, you know, fitting classes into their schedule uh, versus um, Lee Arendelle has, I think the capacity is about 1700 people and they have a residential substance abuse treatment center. They have, uh, that's where they house uh, the, you know, um, severe mental health, uh, people with severe mental health issues, they're, they're there and segregated a little bit um, from the general population. Um, and then, um, and of course, Metro is in an urban area and all the rest of the prisons are in very rural, rural areas. Um, and so to say, what's it like to go into a prison? These prisons are so different from each other, you know, one, um, you have to be buzzed into, you know, like three or four doors, different doors. And then there's other locked gates and other locked things to even get to your classroom. Whitworth is actually much more, you know, close together. There's really, they're still buzzing doors, but they, they don't, you know, you have to be escorted, have an escort to get to your classroom. And they have like cameras in your rooms and stuff like that. Um, again, I've been down to Pulaski. I don't quite know what it's going to be like. But um, one of the things that's, you know, always been a challenge for, for me inside the prison um, is to be such a, I wish we could move away from this binary of being pro um, people who are incarcerated or versus um, having a stance, a punishment or a revenge stance. And often I feel like the officers are suspicious of volunteers because they, um, they don't understand people that have compassion for the folks coming in. And so, and especially when you're coming in and offering education, and especially if you're offering college degrees, which we, which we are um, through our partnership with Georgia State, um, the students can earn an associate's degree and in general studies. And, um, and so there's a lot of um, resentment around that thinking, well, my kids can't go to college, which of course they could. They live in Georgia, they could. Uh, you know, they just have to make a B average. Uh, and, but we, um, it's just, so I don't know. I, that's my long answer to a short question is it's very different and when I, and I would say it's very different from location to location. And it's very different from when I first started, um, which was, about 12 years ago. Um, and I would say one of the reasons I started bringing in different instructors before we had the associate's degree, before we had the certificate was because it became normal, like going through these gates with the razor wire, like, you know, Lee Arendelle really is like, it's three 
three layers of razor wire and then you get you know bust through these gates and you're inside this razor wire area it's like all of that you know just to get to your classroom and all of that became normal to me and i was like oh no i i don't want this to be normal i want people i want to bring be reminded by other people how shocking and how disorienting it is to come in and teach here. Yeah, yeah. And not to mention for the, the people inside having to, you know, assimilate their whole lives to that. Um, yeah, yeah, and you're yeah, working yeah. with some who are lifers uh, also. One of the things you said um, in another interview, I, I really like this quote, the core thing that pushes me is that belief that a human cannot be summed up by the worst thing they've ever done and that we all deserve some type of chance. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, Brian Stevenson said something similar to that recently or in, in his book. And so he gets a lot of credit for that. But I think a lot of people that have been doing this work for a long time have that or at all are motivated for it, have that sentiment. And that actually emerged out of me, that sentiment, after um, a visit with my father. And um, so I didn't, my, my parents divorced when I was two years old and I didn't see my father again until I was 35 years old. And I saw him because I took a trip to Texas, to Huntsville, Texas, inside what they call the walls uh, to see him. And um, I think at that point, like, I think he had actually been incarcerated then at that location under that sentence, like since I was 12. So from the time I was two and 12, he was in and out for different mis misdemeanors and things like that. And he is still serving that same sentence um, uh, from the time I was 12 to now. So I'm, I just turned 47. So he's been in prison for 35 years. And um, we, we visited in July and we had a special visit. So we visited for four hours and it was 104 degrees and it was really loud in the visitation area inside. So we sat outside <laughs> uh, for four hours in Huntsville, Texas in July. And, um, you know, I, the first 30 minutes or so, I just cried and yelled at him and, you know, and, he took it and but we had a good conversation but because we were outside like the, the what he the death row room was right behind us mm. so he had actually the his prosecutor had gone after the death penalty for him and it what he did not commit murder um and so it's one of the few cases in texas where they went after the death penalty for a sexual assault case Mm -hmm. um, and he got 40 years. Um, and, you know, my whole life, I had just been so angry at him. Like I hated him just so much because, you know, I'd created this, this idea of this monster in my head and, um, and these stories from my family, you know, my mom never really said anything bad about my dad, but it, I was just so angry, just felt like this person had ruined my life. I grew up in the same town he did. He was notorious. I had negative consequences on my life. And, but I sat and talked and had this philosophical, you know, cause he doesn't, he's the butcher there. He goes to work. He works seven days a week, nine hours a day. So that he does just to keep himself busy. He doesn't really talk to anybody. He just reads. And so we just had these conversations, you know, some deep philosophical conversations. And I was like, I kind of, kind of like this guy and my eyes are hazel and just about everybody in my mother's side of the family their eyes are brown and so during you know like he would say things and then I would be like oh he was like I'm really stoic I have to be blah 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 and I'm like but I can read your emotions because your eyes just turned blue and mine turned blue when I'm feeling this and I you know it was just like again you're thinking your whole life you're like I'm the only my eyes do this. And then you meet your father who you have kind of distanced yourself from your whole life, kind of denied your whole life and like, Oh, well, that's where, that's where I get that from, you know? 
Um, and I just, it just, he can't be summed up by the worst things he's ever done. And he's a, he's a serial violent offender. Um, and he's still my father. And I was actually able to let go of a lot of my anger around him um, and start doing this work. Yes, Wendy, could you tell us more about your work with reforming arts? Can you give us an image or a scene that will bring our listeners into this work um, that you've been motivated to do? Well, I think that I have to do two parts of that. So there's pre-pandemic and whatever's next, right? I've spent the last year trying to figure out what's next and what we're going to continue doing and what we're not going to continue doing and kind of reflecting on some of our, some of my mistakes and, you know, how we're going to do that, you know, deal with these things going forward. So like I said, I started teaching theater classes in 2009 and I went in thinking, you know, my undergrad in theater, I was a stage manager, not a director, not an actor. Um, and, but I was like, well, I can teach a theater class. So I, I read a lot and I talked to a lot of my friends that are theater teachers. I had a, a good lesson plan. You know, I knew exactly what to do and what to expect. And once, and then nothing like that lesson plan, which was supposed to be two hours of instruction, because, you know, trying to get people to let go of their filters and things like that was a big part of the steps, but they didn't have any. And so it lasted about 30 minutes. And then I was like, I was smiling and was like, y'all are so advanced. And I was thinking, what am I going to do? And what is going on here? So I've really spent the last uh, more than a decade trying to answer that question. What's going on here? Why is this different? Why are they responding differently than, you know, this one particular book says everyone always reacts the same, you know, like in similar ways. And um, the answer to that was just that that particular class, right? I've had classes that people didn't have any filters. I've had classes where people have really strong, you know, <laughs> filters and really strong anxiety around performance. So um, it's, you, again, that's what I needed to learn is it's not a the people in prison aren't different from anybody else um, on the outside. Like there's a whole range of, 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 uh, of issues that they have. It's just, everything's just hyper. It's just accelerated on the inside. Any dysfunction or anything that's on the outside is on the inside. It's just like, it's like it's on speed there, <laughs> you know? Um, and then we, um, around 2012, we started bringing in guest instructors because like I said, I was like, this is becoming normal for me, people. And then the, the students were attaching themselves to me so much thinking that I was the only person that, you know, has ever cared about them and things like that. So I wanted to expose, you know, we had, we had donors at that point and it was like, well, and we had, and a lot of the donors were, um, professors that I'd had at some point. So I started inviting those people, my professors and my classmates, people with master's degrees in to, to teach. At first it was like three weeks, you know, like I would design a quarter long course over, you know, with a theme, but then um, I would ask uh, somebody to come in and teach one book for three weeks. And then I was there to kind of pull them all together uh, for a cohesive thing. Eventually, we uh, got into a partnership with Georgia State. Um, and that was through, you know, some of our most dedicated volunteers formed a faculty group on campus and organized themselves and then, you know, went to their deans and then to their provost to ask for, you know, money and support and course releases and things like that. They really did all the legwork and then invited me in. And that was, that was nice. Uh, <laughs> and um, so that we could actually, first we did a certificate in uh, creative uh, interactive theater. Uh, it's what we call it now. And then uh, now folks can do an associate's degree, um, general studies. We've not, not actually graduated anybody because it's been harder to 
um, a lot of the, there are now there are other, when I started, there were no, there were no secular programs besides mine that were not federally mandated, but now their uh, life university has a college program. Um, of course there's Ashland has an online program. Um, Georgia State has their program, um, their own um, program they run at Walker and several other prisons. Uh, so there are more people have options now, and I'm really I'm really glad about that. Um, so going forward, uh, because Second Chance Pell has been reinstated and will be re fully reinstated probably by 2023, I expect a lot of colleges will. Um, you know, return to the prisons. So we're thinking about, again, keeping our core values that are thinking about uh, creative critical thinking at the same time. <laughs> um, how do we continue with our associate's degrees through Georgia State, but also make that more of like a um, work release um, and implementing this. So we, we're starting to apply for grants around work release uh, and work with the film industry. We're work, and we've had some conversations with other partners like partners um, um, teaching people to be fa fabricators, uh, welders, uh, but, but sculptors. Like there's welding programs inside the prison, but we're working on kind of combining that skill with the create creativity um, Again, because people are, are work that's very much needed in the uh, film industry, those those type of skills. So that's what we're working on right now. And I'm finishing up our pedagogy. And the pedagogy that I've developed is um, is taking, uh, well, diffracting um, theater of the oppressed and that type and critical thinking through a new materialist lens shouldn't say lens when I'm talking about new materialism, but that really is what it is, you know, applying that quantum physics to it. And, and so in theater of the oppressed, what I realized is it's, it's still so masculine. We, so over the years, we kind of adapted and changed the exercises, but now we're just completely, you know, taking that out and really thinking about in, intra action is our first thing. And that's really in that, in the traditional theaters, uh, in theater of the press, the first two steps is to know yourself and to know others, which then, so we replace those with an overall intra action, which would include the knowing yourself, knowing others, knowing your environment, knowing how all of these things interact, intra act to affect what, to whatever. And then, um, we, our second thing on our second step or tenet in this pedagogy is mode of play. And I really believe that people need to enter into a mode of play for, for true learning and true understanding. Uh, and it's really important in this uh, prison setting to get people into this mode of play, to get them, out, you know, to get them out of prison basically. Um, and, their constant stress, their constant trauma that they face there. But at the core, the third tenet is this ethics of care. And, um, and, and I think that's a thing that um, we have missed, has not, have not stressed enough in the past, is that ethics of care. And then a fourth would be diffraction. So that would be, you know, instead of analysis, we, or reflection, we say diffraction. And then the last one is the creative becoming. And we use creative becoming instead of transformation because, uh, and you you know, we don't, because within new materialism, we don't believe in utopia. We just believe in becoming together. And so that idea of trying to get the students to the point where they're really working in collaboration with each other, it's not about competition, it's about just, the next improvement, knowing that once we reach that improvement level, that then we're gonna see the problems with that and then we're gonna have to go to the next, right? And that we're always going to be moving and that we never reach a, a, a utopian state.
Wendy, that that last piece about becoming, I'm gonna ask you another question after this, but I want to say the last piece about becoming was reminding me of a of something that I read um, that uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, the black studies, black feminist abolitionist scholar wrote about, um, it was a, she, she was critiquing certain postures of reform um, that when you get a win, what do you do the next morning? You have to find the problems with the victory you just won and keep pushing. And I feel like there's something like deeply, um, that, that there's something about this sort of moment of sort of diffraction or sort of creative becoming together that anticipate that while it's happening at a relational level in these, um, in these classrooms that you're co-creating with students um, that also sort of anticipates like a, and, and expresses a sort of larger um, sort of principle, um, a larger political principle. So I just wanna appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yeah, and I'm wondering if, um, I'm wondering if you might give us an example of like one of the exercises that you do like to give some, some of our listeners are super um, familiar with theater of the oppressed and others have just have only heard us talk about it on this, on this podcast. So it may be there, you know, for only, you know, second time, first time hearing it. So can you give us like a concrete image of, um, of like what this, what this looks like? So we might, you know, come in and we'll circle up and we'll do, you know, like a, you know, fun little game like zip, zap, zap or something where you just have to be quick and, you know, use your observation skills and things like that. And then, you know, uh, we've, we uh, have borrowed a lot from interplay, um, which is a, 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 method of movement and dance and, and things that they say that organization says everyone can do um and it's because it's incremental steps and i really like that a lot of these you know theater the press and stuff like that there's this assumption they say everybody can do it but you have to have a theater degree to understand what these people are talking about <laughs> like, you know um and in interplay you don't and so it's the it's the incremental steps you know start with something just checking in with each other and then um a move into an exercise so you know and again borrowing from interplay it could be like i could talk about and the way they describe that is you know then you say the headline you don't you don't you're in a circle, you don't take up all the room, you just say a sentence, I could talk about whatever, and it could be something going on with your life or, or whatever, but you move on, you know, and the next person said, well, I can talk about this. And so you kind of get an idea of where people are um, that day from that. And then, um, then you can move into uh, kind of group exercises. Uh, one of the things we like to act, have them act like they're talk quickly as if they're an expert about something. And that exercise actually and others, others, but this one is particularly good at getting people into that mode of play. I have seen, like I can like not just seen, but felt energy shifts happen within that exercise where people, because, you know, because these folks aren't theater folks. They come in, especially the first couple of weeks, they're just like, they're terrified of what I'm going to ask them to do. And, um, but then they are more open to hearing things. I don't lecture, but I, um, I integrate philosophy through, throughout the course. And, um, and we're working on how to do this style in just about all of our classes. I don't know if it's ever going to work for algebra, but, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, just trying to expose the instructors to this too. And then, um, and then we'll go into storytelling. So the point of all the classes is to develop some type of story and to, because I'll, well, I'll just talk about the certificate in, in general. So that's 47 credit hours, uh, our certificate was, and 30 hours of those were basically first year of college. Um, and they got, and they were, those credits were eligible for college credit, you know, a comp one and two algebra, maybe a science class, um, but poetry, creative writing, everybody has to take several poetry classes, several creative writing classes, along with the theater classes. Um, and 
at the end, and usually there's a theme over the two years. And so, yes, um, our several we have several plays written with the title Utopia in it because we studied Utopia for two years, and that and we started with Plato, and we started with the cave, and we read Thomas More's um, Utopia, and um, which the students read Thomas More's Utopia, and then we're like, well, that's he just described our living situation, so which is you know, interesting. And so our, the capstone for that class was for them to write a play about utopia or dystopia. They wrote a musical about it and um, it's actually quite fantastic. So, uh, and then this was funny because when they, they, at one point they were tired and they were like, we just need a break next quarter. Can we just, can we just do, can we just devise some fairy tales or something? I was like, sure, like, what do you want to do? And then they voted and they said, well, we want to do some Dr. Seuss things. And I was like, oh, sure, we can take a break from Utopia and do some Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and, you know, of course, halfway in, they were like, this is all about Utopia too. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so that was, that was great. And uh, I'd like to do more of that stuff, kind of, kind of devising with them, uh, with students in the future. Yeah. What kind of response have you gotten to these uh, plays, the performances? You know, where have they been performed, and and what kind of feedback have you gotten? Well, a lot of the plays we've actually written inside the prison have never been produced because the warden, went, you know, different wardens, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just one person, but over the years, the wardens haven't allowed us to to pr produce what we uh, wrote because you know there was no happy ending or something or it might make people angry or whatever reason that they just didn't like it um, because again these are we'll have a theme but everybody like be before we wrote the play about utopia we wrote we wrote a play about um, the welfare rights organizing in the 70s and 80s and what spurred that was one their last american studies class they studied um welfare rights organizing and read the poor people's newspaper that was written it came out of the uh, emmaus house in people's town in the 60s and 70s and in that uh paper ethel may matthews who lived in people's town uh, and was the president of the welfare rights, Atlanta welfare rights organize, uh, organization, um, signed her uh, editorials with um, Yours in the Struggle. So that play was called Yours in the Struggle, and it was about welfare rights organizing. Now, we brought in a lot of the, the history and the legal stuff around welfare rights and how it, you know, changed as soon as black people were allowed to get the benefits. And, but people also brought in their uh, experiences with, with um, um, social safety nets and they all had negative attitudes around them. It didn't matter um, what, you know, ethnic group they were from, they all had negative experiences with it. So we really thought that was important. And, you know, some people made decisions, you know, literally to, they didn't want to be dependent on the state and, the, you know, they were young, the industry, they chose to deal drugs. And I think that we included that in that play. And I think that was the reason we weren't allowed to, to you know, because it, I think she read it as pro drugs. It wasn't pro drugs. It was just a reflection of that person's life and, um, you know, and the reality of her life. And so um, I don't remember what the question was that you asked me, Sorry, <laughs> but um, I hope that answered it. Yeah, just yeah. about the feedback you've gotten. Um, oh, I will say that we, we also have a re-entry program and mm -hmm. the students write there. Um, sometimes they, they produce the stuff that was written on the inside and sometimes they uh, write their own stories. And usually the stories around their struggles with re-entry and in 2014, Kennesaw's, uh, Kennesaw State's um, got a, a, a professor got a CEDL grant to call it um, what, Center for Educate Excellence and Learning. 
teaching excellence and learning. And um, they did a survey, a pre-performance survey and a post-performance survey of about between 70 and 100 students there. And there was just four questions. It was basically like, would you hire this, you know, if you were an employer, would you hire a person that's formerly incarcerated? Would you be friends with somebody who's formerly incarcerated? Would you rent an apartment to someone who's formerly incarcerated? And I can't remember what the fourth metrics was, but the change in response from just that play was um, enormous. Like just the shift in attitudes of people of, of you know, 20 somethings or uh, criminal, most of them I think were criminal justice majors was a huge shift in their attitude towards people who were formerly incarcerated. Yeah, and then I guess the next step would be, you, all of you probably know somebody, whether you are aware of it or not, who is formerly incarcerated. Like, um, so that level of awareness too. I, so, okay, so that, that was just a one-off, but I was thinking, um, I was I, one of the things that I think is really cool about the about this program and about I mean any sort of theater of the oppressed kind of program, um, maybe but particularly in this highly violent context that is the U.S. carceral system. Um, it so is that theater of the oppressed is kind of lives the principle of we're all learning, we're all teachers, we all bring knowledge into the room and we're here to kind of bring it out of each other and help each other sort of realize a knowledge that exists both within and between us and our contexts. And one of the things that that strikes me about like, and you know, the warden not letting you all perform it elsewhere is it stops that dissemination. It, it is a moment where this, the power refuses to recognize the artists and creators and theorists in these classes as capable of conveying their, um, and, and worthy of conveying what they know and what they've learned and what they've um, thought through to to others and so that kind of like break in relation feels like like pretty really important to highlight and like the other side of all of the barbed wire and locked doors and and pieces that you know you you mentioned at the top of this interview navigating to to even get to the classroom um it's not just you being you know kept out but certain kinds of knowledge and potential and creativity being kept stored away. Um, anyway, so that that's my long preamble to asking you a question, which is about, you know, we know, we talk a lot about this podcast on this podcast about how the, there's the traditional role of teacher as enforcer, as authority at the front of the room, as sometimes as cop, um, like keeping students from doing bad behaviors. Um, and I'm curious about how you navigate that sort of historical, traditional kind of normative role of the instructor, especially given that you're moving between people who are incarcerated and people who are police and guards and authorities who have to give you access to these spaces. I'm, yeah, could you, could you sort of reflect a little bit about what, what that is like for you? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that um, helps me with that is that I'm a very kind, mean person. <laughs> <laughs> and the students, you know, like the students have a lot of, over the years, and again, we're at different facilities, but tend to have a lot of respect for me and a lot of appreciation for me. And also a lot of, you know, kind of, they're kind of afraid of me, um, which is weird, you know, but, but they know I love them, but, um, and they're used to being yelled at all the time. And I, really try hard not to do that, um, but to hold them to account for their actions. You know, one of the things we implement in the, the syllabus, right? We say from the first, from the very beginning in our syllabus that we are an anti-oppression organization, that we will not, we do not allow hierarchies in any form. And then we name all the, you know, common ways that people, but we would also include it in that, um, whatever a criminal justice sentence because a lot of folks on the inside 
will say, well, I'm better than her because I, she did that and I only did this. And I'm like, you can keep that at the door. I don't care what you did. Uh, I'm not going to look you up. If you tell me, that's fine. But, you know, I, it's just, that's just not information I need. Um, but I, I really think it's like, and it's that kind of loving people and holding them to account and having boundaries is you, strange to some folks on the inside and well, it's just strange for a lot of people in society, quite frankly, but, um, but, you know, I just, I held to, on the second thing in the syllabus says that if you get put in lockdown, then um, you have to write a two page um, note or letter before you can return uh, to class explaining how you, their actions contributed to them going to lockdown. And that's, you know, cause, and I changed, I was very intentional in that language because, you know, people come back from lockdown and they'll tell me all about who, what somebody else did and, you know, to contribute to their behavior. And I'm like, I don't care what anybody else did. What did you do, <laughs> you know, that, you know, made it. And sometimes it was, you know, of course, if, if it's like they went there because of, because they needed protection, they don't owe me a letter, right? But if they, um, and we eventually had to add that if they received a violent disciplinary report that they could not return to class for six months. So, you know, we had to implement some consequences and some stuff I didn't agree with, but, you know, we were quite frankly in a situation where people might be girlfriends in the class and one of them hits the other. And then, you know, usually like if I didn't implement that, the person that was hit would be the one person that dropped out of the class because she didn't feel safe. And I, I just, I couldn't have that. I feel like that sort of highlights like the sort of, you mentioned like having to implement these particular kinds of uh, consequences, like just how limiting it must be in so many ways to teach in this context, because there, there are so many other kind of contexts of teaching where I can imagine like collective ground rules. How do we together decide what happens if there's a sort of breach of community norms? What is a transformative um, or kind of, what would you say process of becoming that like is based less in sort of policing, but in sort of like community accountability groups and community support and eliminating the context where violence could occur in the first place and when you're teaching in a classroom surrounded by barbed wire in a prison like there's just so much less room to maneuver and so like I, I appreciate you reflecting so honestly on the kinds of like kind of tough spots and compromises that that like forces a teacher into where they're like really are like not not good options in the dystopian perhaps utopian environment. And I've had some teachers that just turned out to not be very comfortable with it and, you know, stood up at the top of the room and lectured for 30 minutes and things like that. And then would come to me with saying, I think this person was on drugs or something. And I'm just like, well, I don't know what to do with that information a month later. <laughs> and, um, we're not the police like that. Like it's not our jobs to police people. Now we have to be smart. We have to have our, like, you can't leave something in a room when you're not in there that you want to keep, <laughs> you know, like that is important to you because people are, they're in survival mode. They are trying to survive. And a lot of their, they are incredibly creative uh, they have to be incredibly creative just to survive. And that's one of the things that is wrong with education programs across the nation and probably across the world is because, you know, in my PhD program in school of education, the only class that they can talk about creativity is for the gifted um, people taking gifted instruction. We have this idea that these rich, privileged kids that get to be in the gifted programs are the only creative people. Poor people. I grew up very poor. Poor people 
are very creative. They have to be creative to survive. People in prison are very creative. They have to be creative to survive. Now, we just need to like foster that creativity in a productive way that's going to allow them to actually be able to support themselves and their families and so they can be productive citizens. Yeah. Well, that leads me to ask, um, do you have any stories you could share on the impact that these theater classes and, and the plays uh, have on, on the people that you're teaching? Well, you know, we've been doing this a long time. We've got a lot of alumni and I will say that um, our program's not a silver bullet. Like people come out and they don't have housing, they don't have um, stable situations. And so I wish we had, you know, much more superstars, you know, super success stories of people reentering in society. But what we've recognized is that people need more support. Like we need more support in our reentry for that. But even with saying that, I'll say one of my first, you know, cause I'm, well, I didn't say like um, when I first went in, I went in with scripts and thinking, we'll just do this. And this, the students didn't want to do that. They, they wanted to write their own stuff. And so I was actually not familiar with theater of the oppressed when I started doing this. I learned it because the students at, you know, basically wanted to do that style of theater. They didn't know what it was. So I had to learn it. Uh, and so um, like one time they read Foucault and they're like, Oh, you read this because this is why we have to read this. I'm like, no, I have to read this because of you, because I'm trying to understand you <laughs> and the prison system. But um so I would just remind me again your question, Tina. Exactly what oh, you're saying. Just just the impact that you, oh, yeah. you are yeah. seeing with these classes. So as I'm you know reading about all the very limited research that has been conducted in women's prisons over the years, um, we read we read Antigone a lot. We read Antigone with different groups a, a lot. It's a um, foundational text of ours and the but the first time we read it one an older student she's in her 50s didn't have a high school diploma that was before we had a certificate you know we required a high school equivalency um she came to class and she was actually the only one that came to our first section of the class and she and she's just like She's like, I was reading this and I just loved it. And then other people were coming because it was one that was kind of in older English. And uh, people were coming to her and saying, I don't understand this. What is going on? And she, so she spent the week explaining it to people. And then she just teared up and she said, I never thought I could be a person that could read something like this and not only understand it, but explain it to other people. And I was just like, uh-huh. And of course I wanted to get up and jump up and down and hug her and kiss her and just be like, thank you. Thank you for saying that to me, you know, but, um, you know, other people that were in class for years didn't say anything, you know, like it's a story. It's all about storytelling. It's revealing these stories and, and people hearing other people's stories so that to reduce their isolation, because you can be set, surrounded by 1700 people who've all been traumatized in the similar ways that you are, but you're not talking about that in the general population, right? So, um, but we had one student that didn't, never said anything, eventually wrote me, like didn't turn in homework, kept saying, Wendy, don't give up on me eventually turned in like 11 page journal um, that was her life story. It was completely heartbreaking, but she didn't ever say anything in class. And then she was come to her first re-entry meeting. We kind of, we didn't connect immediately. At, now we connect with, we track people make sure we can connect with them immediately, give them some money. But then we didn't really have that permission from the department of corrections. We didn't have that capability. So she had been out about 18 months when I caught, you know, was able to connect with her and called her. 
she came to that first meeting and she told her whole life story with people that I, she knew me and one other person. And so I did an interview with her several years ago and I said, what, what was the difference? That was a huge shift of, you know, being, uh, being vulnerable. Um, and she said that she felt like it was her last chance and that she had to come clean. And that if she did not get involved with us and stay involved with us, that she was going back to prison for the sixth time. And she didn't want to. And so like that, and I, I've always said, or for several years, not always, because a lot of this I've been learning, but that's, a, that's you know, our key, one of our keys to being resilient is being able to be vulnerable. And the whole time she was in prison, she was not able to be vulnerable. She's gone through that trauma. Um, but when she got out, she got to the point where she could be vulnerable with herself and with other people. And um, as I said, she's been in prison five times um, in over like a 20 year span. And now she's been out of prison for six years. That's amazing. Um, I feel like, you know, you started out the answer to that question about, um, about kind of stories of impact about, you know, you, you said it's not a silver bullet. Like you sometimes wish we had these banner stories. And I, I feel like there's a, there's something about your answer that makes me reflect on like, what is it to want these like particular token stories when like as your mission statement, I love the mission statement of reforming arts. Reforming arts supports people who are under carceral control in Georgia through arts, education, and reentry services, our theater infused higher education and prison and reentry programs, foster the development of criti creative critical thinking, and encourage students to explore creative solution and build livable lives. And I thought of that as you're talking about like the inability to be vulnerable, the constant survival mode, the totalizing forms of surveillance and violence that people who are incarcerated are navigating every single day and sometimes slash maybe every moment in in a lot of contexts that the question is how do we make life less unlivable, even livable um, in contexts that, that are baseline unlivable. And I think this, you know, both of the, the narratives you sort of shared with us just now really kind of uh, reflect, reflect that. Yeah, it's important to us. We developed that, that the live, livable lives. Uh, you know, it's something that Karen Barad, I'm, I really like Karen Barad. It's, um, and it's something that she first said uh, that I really was heard in that way. And it was like, no, that's that's exactly what we need to do because you know at the time we our main facility was Lee Arendelle State Prison, you know, and it we had most of our students were lifers who had done at least over ten years, um, and we've had a few students, long term students, that were life without possibility of parole, and so many of these programs are geared towards you know, reducing recidivism and stuff. And I'm like, well, we didn't have any numbers about reducing recidivism because we'd had the same students for five years and they have 15 years left on their sentence, you know, um, or people that were never getting out. But we also realized that those people are the culture, uh, they control the culture inside the prison. These long-term lifers control the culture. And so, these folks in having something that they were really passionate about and enjoyed and something to look forward to and something that they would go, to, they began going to um, young people under life sentences, people that were, you know, they understood how angry they were and how disconnected and stuff like that. And they went and they started going to them and saying, yeah, you could, you could do this. You could join this gang or you can, you know, really just double down and get a PhD in dominoes or spades or whatever, or you could do something productive with this time. 
here, here's this class that I really enjoy and I think would be good for you. Um, or some students, you know, some of our longer term students um, take their books and take them back to the dorm and teach a poetry class. You know, they would do a self-organized classes inside the dorms uh, for people that for whatever reason were interested but couldn't qualify or were in some other program, whatever reason. But it, you know, helped them build that culture inside. They're never going to be content with their lives, but it gave them something. Yeah, those are great stories. Thank you. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. Lucia, is there anything else? We need I, have we, is there anything, Wendy, that you want to share that we haven't asked you before we ask our final standard question? Um. You know, it's been a while since I've been inside the prison and I miss it. It's been a it's been a really tough year for us uh, as an organization and as for me as an individual, um, just not being able to have contact with my students, knowing that. But, he, you know, but having relationships with people in reentry that were talking to them and knowing how tough things have been inside the prisons in Georgia and at the same time having a father that was in prison um, in Texas, you know? Um, and so at one point, one week, um, but in Texas, they were doing mandatory testing every couple of weeks. So I was able to know that he had gotten negative COVID test at least. Um, but at one point, you know, uh, they, you know, had so many cases of COVID at that prison. And then uh, they had a, the freeze. They didn't have any water or, you know, like electricity for a week. And I'm just sitting there as a child, you know, that my parents living through that. And there was like, one of the things I've, I've said over the last year is that no one should, no one that has a, a loved one incarcerated should know as much about the system as I do. Um, so that's, that's been tough over the last years. I've had a lot of, like, I have a lot of knowledge around these things and a lot of knowledge that quite frankly, I wish I didn't have, but going forward, I hope we can, as an organization, make use of this knowledge, make use of this, um, this time and help us reframe a lot of things. Yeah, before we before we pressed record, you were talking a little bit about one of part of that vision of creating more spaces for dialogue and processing among people who have experienced the traumas of being inside, as well as the loved ones who have been outside. So is that part of the is that is that one of the things that emerged in, in the context of COVID? Well, that and, and, and in conjunction with just realizing like, you know, we've had good support from our funders. We've lost a couple of grants um, because we couldn't go inside. Um, and that was unfortunate and it made things really hard, but it really reminded us of like, now we've created this pedagogy. We're not actually that, we don't have to be place-based anymore. Like we can start using this pedagogy and offering it to the families of people who are incarcerated and uh, as well as where we've talked to um, different women's shelters um, as, um, for women who've gone through domestic violence, which is another thing that I'm very, um, it's dear to my heart, um, as well as um, people who like city, for example, city of refuge women who are in um, housing shelters, just just thinking about how can we in maybe go into some jails, expand and not be completely dependent on the Department of Corrections for our programming. Yeah, that's a vision for the future. It yeah. is. <laughs> well, our last standard question, uh, what are you watching, listening to, um, reading that is inspiring to you these days through this pandemic? Well, I have been also writing my dissertation in this pandemic, so <laughs> not so successfully at times, but 
So, you know, the things I've read most recently, uh, I've gone back and read Posthumanism by Rosie Berdotti. And um, I just, I really love that. But all, and I'm listening to a lot of Richard Rohr because, you know, Richard Rohr uh, really likes quantum physics too and, um, and shares my, and I would say my ethics of care does not, my concept of it does not come from um, the feminist <laughs> ethics of care of the 80s and early 90s, but from this concept of it's from, it's from a religious standpoint of um, we have taken this idea of that humans should dominate creation instead of that humans are supposed to care for creation. Um, and we need to kind of flip that. Uh, and so, and then I've been actually become aware of the, the message, which is uh, interpretate uh, reading interpretation of the Bible. I've been listening to that a lot lately too. Okay. Um, thanks. Lucia, what are you into these days? Let's see. I'm about four months behind on um, an overview article. I am supposed to be writing on the work of Lauren Berlant. So if the Political Theology Network people are listening to this, I'm a, I apologize. I'm working on it now. Um, so I've been reading a lot of Lauren Berlant, which is great, like vintage Berlant, like early 90s Berlant, um, theories of sort of the nation state and sexuality and citizenship. Uh, let's see, that's, 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 more, that's more like academic. I've been, um, I decided that I wanted to channel my summer energies in, uh, it, towards a goal. So I've been looking up triathlon training plans. So I'm learning a lot about how to train for a triathlon. Um, that's the that's the fun part of my of my time right now. What about you, Tina? Well, I just listened to the um, uh, podcast uh, called the Improvement Association that the New York Times is doing, uh, or Serial is doing through the New York Times now, and it is about Bladen County, North Carolina, which um, is. Uh, in my hometown territory. Um, I'm about oh, two hours north of there. Um, but my, I have an aunt and uncle who live in Bladen County uh, in Elizabethtown. And it is about segregation and voting rights. And it's just the, just the real mess of politics in this rural, poor, tiny county in Eastern North Carolina. And so it, it gives insight into the work that, um, even though it doesn't talk about it, uh, the work that our Reverend William Barber is doing up in Goldsboro, which is about an hour and a half from there, um, because this is a very poor part of the state. Um, it's about an hour from Wilmington, which is not poor, but the, the rest of the, the state is mostly farms. Um, but the, just the political intrigue in this tiny place, it's a microcosm for a lot of what's going on in the United States right now, especially uh, with resegregation and um, you know racism and and all of that 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 still exists in the South. So I recommend the Improvement Association. So Wendy Balu, thank you so much for agreeing to be with us today. And uh, we hope you are back in, in with, um, with your women and, and incarcerated people soon, very soon. Thank you. And thank you again for the invitation and the opportunity to talk about myself and, my, and reforming arts. I can do that all day long, every day. Uh, <laughs> and I really appreciate both of your times. Uh, thank you, Wendy. Thank you. for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our interview with Wendy Ballou, 
Executive Director of Reforming Arts in Atlanta, Georgia. Our audio and sound engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our brand new summer 2021 intern is Percy Thompson. Our intro and any interstitial music is by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. And our outro music is by Acrasis. It's from the Unemployed Apologist album, and it's called Plateau's Republic. Mark's Bowen raps guitar, and Mark McKee beats and trumpet. Their music is available on bandcamp.com. Until our next podcast, be well. Spaceman spiff smoking spliffs in the rift between my childhood and the abyss or between my childhood and this Call it what you like When I was younger my scope was focused and I learned to ride a bike in a parking lot with asphalt fumes that permeate my psyche Oh the simple pleasures of thankless ignorance I wasn't even on Ritalin Spent my days fiddling with the imaginary friends that wriggled in Through my bedroom window Digger says, we're born as many men and die as only one. It takes a village to raise a village up to become a holy hermit, a learned Sherpa and Keith Jarrett personal mountains occasionally astounded, usually lonely and confounded. Reach the summit might as well just plummet or call it a plateau and sing meat puppets. Got an illustrated book about birds, a mop and a bucket, illustrated book about birds, a mop and a bucket, illustrated book about birds, a mop and a bucket, illustrated book about birds. There's a lot of there, but don't be scared. Who needs actions when you've got words? I've got a doomsday device in my hand and a lump in my throat. Drew a line in the sand to remind myself that I can decide who I am and act on principle and impose order on madness just as long as my mind's racing against nagging sadness. My one demand is that everyone must understand this, and if you don't, well, neither do I.